If you would, join me in standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. The book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah, chapter 4, as we conclude our study in Jonah this morning. Jonah, chapter 4, follow along there as I read. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Father, once again we come to you, thanking you for your word thanking you for this privilege that we have to be your people sitting under your word. Again, I pray, Lord, that you would create in us a true humility. The fact that we have access to your word, the fact that we are called your people, I pray that you would rescue us from any pride that that would create. That you would cause us to remember this morning your mercy. And that as recipients of your mercy, we would be ready and, and quick to extend that mercy to others. I pray for those who are here this morning who do not know your mercy. They know that they are to give account to a God that they do not know. They know in their conscience, in their being, that they give account to you. I pray that you would show them this morning who you are. That you are not a God who is bringing judgment upon them yet. But you are a God who is right now, at this very moment, this very day, extending mercy to them. And I pray that they would see that. That they would 
take this opportunity to turn from their sin and place their faith in your son, Jesus, as their only hope of salvation and walk away today with that assurance that you have indeed saved them from their certain condemnation. I pray that you would help us to go away today praising you, thanking you, proclaiming your mercies in this world that is dying and lost and does not know their right hand from their left, that we would have compassion, your compassion upon them. We pray for your glory to be accomplished through your word in us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we do reach the conclusion of our study in the book of Jonah. As you remember where we left off last week, Jonah chapter 3, Nineveh had repented of their evil. In fact, their king had come down from his throne, taken off his robe, his kingly garments, put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, and sent out a decree to all the land that they should turn from the evil, from the violence that was in their hands, and call out mightily to God. We saw at the end of Jonah chapter 3 that God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. That is the context for our scripture reading this morning, Jonah chapter 4. As we started, it seems a bit abrupt. We started with the word, but. A contrast. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? What displeased Jonah so much that he was angry? Jonah's anger is aimed at God's mercy. Jonah is exceedingly displeased and angry because God has extended mercy to Nineveh. We see first then in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's unrighteous indignation. Jonah's unrighteous indignation. Now, right off the bat, we're going to have a little excursus on the subject of anger. Jonah is angry at the mercy of God. How is that possible? Well, it's important for us to understand where anger comes from. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you struggle, do not raise your hand, we already know you struggle with anger, okay? How many of you struggle with anger? Well, let me, let me give you some nice words we use for anger, and then I'll re-ask the question. We like to talk about our impatience, or our frustration, or our irritation, Oh, I'm, I'm just ticked or perturbed. I'm flustered. 
We, we like to use a lot of words for anger in order to make our anger not sound so bad. When we use the word anger, what do you think of when I say anger? You, you think of someone taking their fist and punching it through a wall. You think of someone yelling or screaming. When in fact, while that is a demonstration of anger, to be sure, most of our anger sits underneath the surface. And it manifests itself in a quick word or a short gesture, a sigh. In fact, all of us deal with anger. All of us. Where does it come from? We're all angry. Where does our anger come from? Our anger, this is important, anger is an emotional response to a perceived injustice. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived injustice. In fact, I would say that anger is given to us by God. God has given us this capacity, this emotional capacity. In fact, all emotions are God-given. Did you know that? All of our emotions, all of these capacities to feel and to feel strongly, these are all given by God. God has given us the ability to be angry at injustice, at unrighteousness, at that which attacks the righteousness of God. And like all emotions, our emotions are given to us by God to work righteousness. And yet in our sin, we take what is God-given and we pervert it, we twist it. It becomes now, anger becomes an emotional response to perceived injustice. And our, and our justice system is not revolving around God and His righteousness. Our justice system revolves around us. Revolves around our constructs, our worldviews. Revolves around ourselves. This is why our anger is self-centered. Our anger is an emotional response to perceived injustice. And, and because of that, what we get angry at says a lot about us. Our anger is insightful. Our anger is telling. It exposes us. What you get angry at shows what you believe to be important. It demonstrates your system, your self-contrived, self-constructed system of justice. Let me demonstrate. How many of us get angry when someone cuts us off in traffic. We do, don't we? Why do we do that? Why, why is that our emotional response? Here's what's going on internally. How dare they? 
don't they know that I am here? And I was going that way, and they didn't even consider me. They didn't even look out for me. These stupid drivers. Now, I I, I use that because it's kind of comical. We all experience that. And yet, if if you investigate that, where does that come from? Well, we have a belief that it is my road. This is my road. This is my way. I have a right, and I also have the right to be respected. And your actions have not respected me. And, and this, this is a great injustice in our mind. We've been wronged. We've been wronged, and so now we respond in anger, demanding justice be brought, demanding the, the wrong be righted. That's what anger is. We could go on and on. This is not specifically a message on anger, and yet it is extremely helpful, insightful for us to think about anger and the nature of anger. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived injustice. What do you get angry at? What makes you angry? What, what is the cause of your impatience and your frustration and your short reactions and responses? This is helpful for us as we investigate and look at our own hearts. Who do you believe has wronged you? Who do you believe has not respected you? Who has attacked your system of justice, view of justice and fairness, rightness. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. God's standard of righteousness, God's system of justice is not ours. And when we are angry, we do not work for his righteousness, but we work for our own, and it is lacking. Here, Jonah has unrighteous indignation. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm just being righteously indignant. I see all this out. I'm just righteously indignant. Now, it is possible for us as human beings to be righteous in our indignation or in our anger. We are righteous in our anger when we are caring about what God cares about. When our anger is in line and in harmony with God and his perspective. The problem is, this is very rare for us. It is possible for us to be righteous in our anger and yet it is not common We should hold suspect our anger and evaluate it. What are we angry at and why? This is helpful for us. Jonah is angry. In fact, it says that the mercy extended by Yahweh to Nineveh displeased Jonah. It was evil to him. That's what it means. Jonah thought 
that Yahweh's mercy was evil. He's angry. Because God's mercy, in Jonah's justice system, God's mercy to those deserving of judgment is evil. It's wrong. So I want you to get this. In chapter 4, Jonah is bringing Yahweh, he's bringing God to trial. He's putting God on trial. How can God be just? How can he maintain his justice and extend mercy to those who deserve judgment? How can this be possible? He wants God to give answer. Jonah feels justified in his anger. God must give account. How often this is the case where we, we want to bring God to trial. How often we have conversations with people. And this, this is how people respond, right? How could God fill in the blank? I can't believe in a God who would. And, and this is at the crux of it. This is what we do. We bring God to trial. God must give answer to who? To us. God must give answer to me. I don't understand what he's doing, so he must answer to me. God must answer for his actions. How can God be just? How can God show mercy to those who have oppressed his people? Jonah has an argument with God. And he does something interesting. He quotes here a passage. In fact, I would say you would be hard-pressed to find a more important passage that he quotes. It's the most quoted passage throughout the Old Testament. This is what he prayed to the Lord. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah appeals to Exodus chapter 34, the most quoted passage throughout the Old Testament. Let's do this. Let's turn back to Exodus Chapter 34, we read it at the beginning of our service. Do you remember Exodus 34, the context? The context is very important. Moses had gone up on top of Mount Sinai to receive from Yahweh the commandments, the law. He had gone up into the presence of Yahweh and the people of Israel were still down at the bottom of the mountain wondering what had happened to Moses. And while Moses is gone and the people are waiting, the people talk Aaron, the high priest, into building them a golden calf, an idol. And there at the bottom of the mountain, the people of Israel build an idol and they say, this 
is our God the one who delivered us from Egypt? This is the Lord, the one who delivered us. Attributing their salvation to a God who is represented in this idol. Well, this creates anger on the part of God. He tells Moses to go down, your people, this is what Yahweh says, he says, your people, the people you brought up out of Egypt, go down to the bottom of the mountain, look to see what they're doing. They're a stubborn people, a stiff-necked people. And at that point, God says, Yahweh says, I'm not going to go up with you anymore. I'm done. You're stubborn people, you're stiff-necked people. You, you, can, you can go on your own, I'm not going with you. At the end of chapter 33, Exodus 33, I want you to look at verse 12. Moses said to Yahweh, the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation, look at what Moses does, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, this is Yahweh, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See the exchange here. Moses says to Yahweh, Yahweh, your presence, your presence is what we need. Remember, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, the favor of Yahweh. But here Moses says, it's your presence we want. Don't send us up without you. Go with us. And Yahweh says, I will send my presence with you. He says, this presence is what makes us distinct as your people. Verse 17, and the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. I will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh has been a very important theme throughout the entire book of Jonah. It is that name that Jonah refused to proclaim. It is that name that the sailors came to trust in. It is that name, his covenant-keeping name. And he, look, look at how he fills out the rest of that sentence. He says, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now go to chapter 34, verse 5. 
The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In Exodus 32-34, Moses stands on behalf of the people and he pleads with God for God to remember his covenant that he has made with his people. Moses pleads with God Do not take your presence from us. Pardon us from our iniquity. Take us for your inheritance. And it is there on that mountain that the Lord demonstrates to Moses who he is. My name, Yahweh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And now Jonah quotes this passage. He knows who Yahweh is. But now Jonah refers to this passage as an argument with God that God should keep His covenant with His people and not extend mercy to Nineveh. This is how twisted anger has, anger has twisted Jonah. This is how twisted Jonah has become in his anger, in his justice system. Jonah seeks to be another Moses. He lays down before Yahweh an ultimatum. And this is what he says. Therefore now, O Lord, this is, this is who I knew you were. This is what I knew would happen. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Unlike Moses, who put his life on the line. You remember that? He put his life on the line on behalf of the people of Israel. Now Jonah puts his life on the line. And he gives an ultimatum to Yahweh. And he says, it is better for me to die than to live. Take my life from me. If this is what your mercy does, take my life from me. 
That leads then to Jonah's vindictive vigil. Jonah's vindictive vigil. He remembers the covenant mercy and name of Yahweh. But he forgets that Israel and himself included have been beneficiaries of God's mercy. They were first the ones to receive mercy from Yahweh. They were the ones who were sinful and stiff-necked. He uses Yahweh's covenant-keeping name to demand that God judge his enemies. And he wants to see what's going to happen. Will God give in to my ultimatum? That's what's happening here. So Jonah goes out of the city, verse 5, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Jonah's vindictive vigil. Here's what he does. He goes out to the east of the city. Now, east in the Bible always pictures going away from God. Okay, This pictures a, a separation, a, an exile from God. So we started with Jonah leaving and fleeing God's presence, God's purposes, And now we're concluding the book with Jonah once again going to the east of what God's wanting to do. He finds himself again outside of God's will. Goes out of the city and he makes a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade. And look at this. Till he should see what would become of the city. And this is what he he wants to see. Is God going Is God going to destroy Nineveh like he should? Jonah sits on that hillside watching to see if God will destroy Nineveh. He awaits God's verdict. He makes a booth for himself and sits under the shade of it And waits to see if God will be faithful in executing justice. What a bitter man Jonah is here in Jonah chapter 4. But look at what God does as Jonah is waiting for justice to be poured out upon Nineveh. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Appointed, we've seen this word before, God appointed, the Lord appointed a great fish. You remember in Jonah chapter 1, the end of that chapter. Now the Lord God appoints a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his evil or discomfort. Interesting, Jonah had already built a booth to shade himself, but now God provides a plant to shade him from the sun. We see here the inadequacy of Jonah's constructs. The inadequacy of what Jonah builds. This is literally a sign that what Jonah has constructed is not sufficient. Yahweh appoints a plant. This is symbolic of Yahweh's mercy. 
his mercy comes up over Jonah and shades Jonah from the sun to save him, to save Jonah from his discomfort. And look at his response. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Here we have a parallel statement. He was exceedingly angry at what he considered to be evil, that is, the mercy of God towards enemies, those who deserve judgment. But now, he's exceedingly glad for God's mercy upon his own head. Jonah is exceedingly glad for God's mercy from the heat, from his discomfort. But then verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there's that word again, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. The worm here signifies God's judgment. God extends mercy to Jonah, which shades him from his discomfort. And now God has sent a worm to take away that mercy overnight. Verse number 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Again, that word, he appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The sun, the heat of the day, beats down upon Jonah so that he is faint. And he asks that he might die. Now, this is, this is important. As he asks this, he's asking this not of God, but of himself. Okay, this is, this is important. He's actually talking to himself here. Have you, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you been at a place in your life where like, I, would, I just would rather die. I'm at the end. I can't do this anymore. And that's, that's the spirit. Jonah has turned inward upon himself. And he says, It is better for me to die than to live. Why? Because of the heat upon his head. The judgment that is upon his head. Now, now, what is happening here? Yahweh provides mercy for Jonah's head, and he is very glad for that mercy. But in one day, the mercy is gone, and God's judgment has come. The, the heat of the sun has come, and now Jonah wants to die. That brings us to Yahweh's final word. This is Yahweh's explanation of the object lesson. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This is, this is what he ended the first section with. Remember, as Jonah is angry at the mercy extended to Nineveh, he says, Do you do well to be angry? And there is no answer. Here, Yahweh revisits that same question. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And now Jonah is talking to Yahweh and he said, Yes, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I think we can all relate to this. Have you ever been in, in an argument like this? And someone, someone shows you how silly you're being? Have you ever been there? I've been there. A few of us have been there. Where someone brings up a point that you can't argue with it. And you see how silly you're being. And yet you're going to double down, right? Yes, I'm right. Yes, I'm justified. I am right to be angry in this. Angry enough to die. This again is God's great mercy to Jonah. I am so thankful that God does not just quit on us when we are unreasonable, not thinking straight. He says, yes, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Look at what he says here. You pity the plant, this plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You pity the plant. Number one, Jonah, you pity the plant that you are not responsible for it, for which you did not labor. The plant was not the result of your labors. The, the plant was not the result of your work. You were not responsible in making it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. You pity this plant for which you were not responsible. Here is what Yahweh is saying to him. Jonah, you make a very poor God. You are not sovereign. You pity this plant for which you were not responsible. This plant, the growing of which represented God's mercy. And the taking away which represented his Justice, his judgment. He says, Jonah, you're not responsible for this. You're a very poor excuse for playing God. You pity this plant. Notice this also. Jonah has happened. This is, this is very important for understanding this object lesson. Jonah is angry Because God did to him exactly what he wants done to Nineveh. Do you see that? God had extended his mercy to Nineveh. Now Jonah wants that mercy taken away overnight. That's why he's sitting out on that plain east of the city looking Wondering if God's going to bring judgment. I've given God an ultimatum. I've, I've called to remembrance this covenant mercy, who he is. God, take away your mercy from these people. I wonder if God's going to listen. If God's going to do what's right here. So God sends a plant and takes it away, which is exactly 
what Jonah wants him to do to Nineveh. And then he says, you pity this plant, verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh? Should not I have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? What is he saying there? The right hand from the left. This is common language for instructing those to follow the law, right? Don't turn to the right or to the left. Follow the law of Yahweh. What is he saying here? He's saying 120,000 persons who are without my law. Should I not have compassion on these who do not have my word? Who do not have access to my instruction? Should I not pity these? Should I not have mercy on them? You pity the plant that was here in one day and gone the next. Why? Because it shaded your own head. Your justice system, Jonah, is out of whack. Should I not pity these who are without instruction, lost in darkness, and also much cattle? You may ask, what, what is up with the cattle? What's going on with that? Has, has, and and this, this is true. We, we look at that and we go, that's weird. But in fact, when we read all of Scripture, all the Old Testament, isn't, isn't, isn't that exactly where everything started? God created the heavens and the earth. And... In the heavens, he placed the lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on earth, he made the sea and the dry land. Isn't this what Jonah, isn't this what Jonah professed in Jonah chapter 1? I serve Yahweh. I serve the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And what did he fill the sea with? He filled the sea with the fish. What did he put on dry land? He put vegetation, plant life. He even put creeping things. And he put the livestock, the cattle, the beasts of the earth. And he placed man there to oversee all that he had made, all that he had created. In the fall, man has left his responsibility, his place, his God-given place. And God seeks to restore him, bring him back to that place, and in so doing, to bring all of creation back to that place. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God's concern for all living beings because he has made all things. It's all his. And in the book of Jonah, do you see in the book of Jonah, God's sovereignty, not just over Jonah, but over all of creation. Do you see that? He appointed a great fish in the sea. He's sovereign there. 
He appointed a plant to grow because he's sovereign over the plants. He appointed a worm as judgment upon the plant. Why? Because he's sovereign over the creeping things. He appointed a scorching east wind. He hurled a wind upon the sea. He hurled a wind upon the dry land. He is sovereign over sea and dry land. And he's sovereign over the cattle and over all the creatures that he has made. God's salvation of mankind includes the salvation of all the earth, the restoration of all things. God is bringing man back to what he created them to be, which will bring a new creation. God will give a new creation to those that he has redeemed. A new heavens and a new earth. Here he demonstrates that he is sovereign over all of his creation. He indeed is the God who made the sea and the dry land and who is over all of it. Now, what what are we to do here? He ends on this note where most people say, "What, what is the answer? This is an awkward way to end, but is it really an awkward way to end? This is a rhetorical question, right? At the end of Jonah, it's a rhetorical question. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city that has more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? And he leaves it. What's the answer? See, the, the book doesn't end with the question. The book ends with the answer that all of us should give. Yes. Yes, God should be merciful. Yes, God should show compassion. Yes. And Jonah is confronted with his unjust justice system. Now, what are we to do with this as God's people? You know, I, I, I think throughout the book of Jonah, we have heard over and over again that as God's recipients of mercy, we are the recipients of God's mercy. We are to be proclaimers of that same mercy. We've heard that over and over. I can't help but think that we need to hear that over and over, not just once. Have we forsaken mercy in how we think about others, and how we speak of others, and how we pray for others? What we say, what we do. Has faith, has faith, like Jonah, has our faith turned inward upon ourselves? Have we turned inward where the least bit of suffering in our lives makes us want to give up and question God? When our life doesn't work the way that we think it should, does it cause us to want to give up 
and question God's goodness and His mercy to us, friend, that is a sure sign that we have turned inward and we have forgotten to look up at God's great mercy, the big picture of God's mercy for an entire earth, for an entire globe. We are so introspective, so turned inward that that the least discomfort for us causes us to question God. We must repent of our inward looking. I also feel that we can be guilty this morning of Matthew 18, the parable in Matthew 18. Do you remember Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant? There was a servant, Jesus told a parable, a servant who owed a great debt to his master. And that master was merciful to him, gracious to him, and gave him a relief from that debt. He forgave. The debt that was owed, the great debt that was owed. And do you remember what that servant did? That servant went out and found someone else, another servant, who owed him, by comparison, a very small amount. And he had him taken off to, to pay for what he was owed. We are so often the unmerciful servant who've been shown much mercy and yet are so quick to bring judgment upon those that we feel have mistreated us or been, been wrong to us, wronged us in some way. We need to repent. The lack of mercy. Jesus says, those who show mercy will receive mercy. You see, the fact, that the reality of how we extend mercy reveals our heart, reveals our understanding of mercy. Those who cannot and will not extend mercy are actually demonstrating that they may not understand mercy themselves. They, in fact, may not understand the gospel I want to use something happening in our country even this month as a good test case for us. This month, as I understand it, is Pride Month. Pride Month. I think, and I haven't read on this, I think there was even a parade yesterday somewhere in Spokane where people marched and proudly proclaimed their sin and support for sin. Proudly. Now I want to use this. I I, I feel like God has provided this opportunity perfectly for this message. I, I want to ask you that question. When you think of the pride parade, what does that do 
in your heart? Are you angry? Does that create anger? That people would march? Being proud of sin. Celebrating sin. Does that make you angry? Why? Is God angry with sin? Yes. He is. And I do think it's important to call homosexuality and all forms of sexual deviance sin. It's important for us to do. But I want to I pick a little bit here. Does that make you angry and why? Do we want God to bring justice upon them? A Baptist preacher this last week, last Sunday, I believe it was, preached a message. This has hit the internet and been very talked about in the news. A Baptist preacher last week, speaking to his congregation, to many amens, I will say, to many amens in the congregation, he said that he believes we should reinstitute the law and the requirements of the law for homosexuals and all homosexuals today ought to be executed. And again, hearty amens came from his congregation. Yeah, that's what we should do. Execute the sinners. And this leads then to the, the conclusion of our series. Do you understand, do we understand, that we today live in the age of mercy? God is not bringing judgment upon sinners today. Why? Is it because God doesn't care about sin? Oh, oh no. Don't, don't believe that. God cares deeply about sin. And God has anger towards sin. Don't convince yourself otherwise. But God has not brought judgment upon sinners yet. If God saw fit to bring judgment upon those who marched down the streets proclaiming and celebrating their sin, if God wanted to bring judgment upon them, He could. We must be careful not to try to play God. We make very poor substitutes for God. God has extended His mercy to the world. And we live today in the age of mercy. Why has God withheld his judgment? Because we saw this last week. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does God not bring judgment down upon sinners' heads? Because he is a God merciful and gracious. He is a God slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love. 
That is who our God is. And he has not left off his holiness or his righteousness. He has not left off or compromised his holiness and his righteousness. No. He has accomplished justice for sin in his own son. The judgment. I want you to get this. The judgment that every single person on the face of the earth deserves. The judgment that you and I deserve. He has taken His own Son and He has poured out His justice and He has poured out His judgment upon Jesus for sin. And he extends that mercy to the world. This is what he says in John chapter 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. This is not the age of judgment. This is the age of mercy. That's where you live. 